When a young married couple brings home their first new baby, it is cause for great celebration. What do you think happens in heaven when a new baby is born spiritually? Let's join Dave Wurtzen as we continue our focus on the most famous passage in the Bible, John chapter 3. We have begun a series which I think is the most vital series that a family of believers can get into because the whole essence of, of our worship, the whole essence of what we're trying to do is to get into Christ's likeness, to be intimate with Him, to know Him. And what, I have, what I've observed in being raised in Christianity is that we do a lot of talking about what is Christ like. And yet very seldom do we ever really ask that question seriously and get down to business and, and, and realize objectively what is Christ like? What did he genuinely teach? We began a message which I think is the vital, almost the core part of what Christ taught and what he believed. And it's that subject which in the modern world has been very much talked about, sometimes maligned, it's she must be born again. Let's turn to John chapter 3, probably the most famous chapter in the Bible. And yet if I were to ask you what comes before John chapter 3, what comes after it, the truth of the matter is that a whole lot of you would have to say, I don't know. I know John 3.16. For God's the little world, I give you the only God's who that believe in that you're not here to have eternal life. I know John 3.16, and I've known it for a lifetime. But what comes before John 3.16, what comes after? But I want you to start to realize that verses don't just pop out of the sky, they're in a context. And you'll never genuinely understand what Jesus has in mind until you start reading the Bible. Take the Living Bible and read a paraphrase. Start to read large sections of it. Start to get these ideas into your mind. We're introduced to our subject of what does it mean to be born again. We began with the religious discussion. We found out that this whole concept of being born again was a conversation that Jesus was having with a religious person. We met Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and we discussed that religion is not going to do it. The idea that God, when we go into eternity, puts all the good things on one side of a scale, all the bad things on another, and somehow the good will outweigh the bad, that if anybody could get to heaven by putting good things on one side of the scale and bad things on the other, Nicodemus was that man. Nicodemus was a religionist of the religionist, and yet Jesus looked at him in verse 3 and said, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You look down at verse 6 again, Jesus said, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to to spirit. Jesus told one of the most religious men in the first century that the only way that you could know for sure that you were born again was to be born from above. And Jesus begins in a discussion, in a back and forth discussion with Nicodemus to start to clarify what does it mean to be born again. And Nicodemus's first objection, his first question, when Jesus said, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again, was to read Jesus' as saying that I need to enter into my mother's womb and be born again physically, which is obviously a ridiculous idea. That's what we want to begin to clarify. 
Nicodemus raised the issue. How can I be born the second time? How can I go back into my mother's womb and be born? In verse 4, Jesus said in verse 5, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and of the Spirit. Now, there's been a lot of discussion in John chapter 3 about the fact that born of water means water baptism. In many church families, they put a lot of salvation stress on water baptism because there's a proclivity in all of us as human beings that we want to do something. We want to have to perform. We want to have to do some work. And down through the centuries, religion always gets some works that you can do in order to get right with God. You see, very deep in your psyche, you want to believe that you can go out and do something. You can perform some ritual. You can do some action that will make you right with God. And so many interpreters have taken this verse, born of water, to mean that water baptism is the work that we need to do in order to be born from above. And so they put a big stress on coming to their church. You need to be baptized with their baptism, and then you're going to be sure that you're right with God. And one of the things you need to learn to do in your Bible study is to develop answers to the question, what does it mean to be born from water from the context? Usually when you're in a conversation with somebody, you don't just jump in and, and just introduce something totally new, totally different, that you just throw into the conversation, never talk about it before it or after it again in the context. That's usually not the way we have a conversation. It's not the way a writer writes carefully. A good writer will introduce a theme and then develop it. So if you have questions about what he means in one sentence, read the next sentence. Read a little bit more. Nicodemus just asked Jesus a question. How do I enter the second time on my mother's womb and be born? Jesus' response, you've got to be born of water and you've got to be born of the Spirit. Then in the next verse, Jesus develops it even more. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Now when did flesh give birth to flesh? Can any of the kids tell me when flesh gave birth to flesh in your life? On your birthday. Well, that's just a strange way of talking about your birthday. When flesh gives birth to flesh. It means when humanity gives birth to humanity. Only it's a strange way in our language of talking about your birthday. What I'm trying to get across to you is the simple reality that in the flow of this conversation, we're talking about physical birth and we're talking about spiritual birth. And Nicodemus and Jesus are just interacting about physical birth and spiritual birth. And Jesus is trying to, trying to grab Nicodemus and pull him into an understanding of spiritual reality. Now I could develop that phrase a little bit more. Flesh gives birth to flesh is a loaded phrase for John. Because what it means is that when we were born the first time, we got into trouble. You see, we got into a dying life. We got into a life that was running out of steam. We got into a life where our bodies grow and develop, and then they start to get old, and they begin to decay. You see, when flesh gave birth to flesh, it didn't give birth to eternal life. It gave birth to a death. And that's a big problem among all of us today. 
It's a problem that all of us have to wrestle with. It's a problem that all of us have to face. In a lot of counseling that I do, in middle age especially, you've got to start to work with people about facing the reality that they're not going to be here forever. And a lot of people start to do crazy things because they start to realize, hey, flesh doesn't last forever. What Jesus is telling us is that that first birth gets us into a lot of trouble. But he's got good news. You see, some of the worst bad news in the American culture is that we've taken the phrase, flesh gives birth to flesh. Human life creates human life, and we've said that's all there is. And then we start to sing, is that all there is? Because it runs out of steam. You know, when you're young, you can really get excited about looking at a Ninja Turtles video. You can get really excited when you're 15 or 16 and you're going to get your license. And then if mom and dad can afford it, you can get really excited about having a car. You can get really excited about going to school or starting a job. You can really get excited about getting married. But if life starts to develop and grow, if you live it just for flesh, then it starts to run out of gas. And that's what's wrong with Americans. That's a dominant thing. It's why we've got counting centers all over the place because people are just running out of meaning. They're decaying. And it's a bummer to decay. It's a discouraging, depressing, agonizing thing to decay. And that's why it's so neat that Jesus went on and said, but spirit gives birth to spirit. And then Jesus develops what it means for spirit to give birth to spirit. Look at verse 7. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. In verse 8, Jesus began to talk about explaining to us what it means spirit gives birth to spirit, how the spirit does that. And he uses the illustration of the wind. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it's coming from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, the reason the Lord used illustrations is for us Texans, many, many years later, when as soon as you mention the word wind, all the Texans would know, I know about wind. Man alive, we cannot experience a day without wind. I mean, it blows from the north. And they tell us a blue norther's coming. Well, the springtime comes when it blows off the Gulf, and we got the wind blowing from the south. But I have yet to have a weatherman come up and say, how many of you don't like the north wind? Call in if you don't like the north wind and we'll take a vote on it and we'll change it during the night. Now I've heard weathermen tell me, well, it's going to come this direction, this direction, but I've never yet had a weatherman tell me, we're, we've got a new technique and we're going to control it. And that's one of the things that the Lord is saying. There's some very important things about the wind. Number one, you can't see it. You don't go outside and say, I just saw the wind. Now in Texas, you can time the wind. You can tell exactly when it arrives. It smashes our north door. Kaboom! It's here. But I don't go run out and say, well, let's go out and look at the wind. You can't see it, but you can know that it's there. Also, you can hear the wind. You can't see the wind, but how many of you ever heard the wind? Sure, you can hear wind. 
You can not see it, but you can hear it. You know when it's present, and you also know its effects. Now, Jesus said that's the way the Holy Spirit works, and I want all of you to think very carefully. You see, there's an invisible wind-like person. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, and he's invisible. You can't see him. He's always invisible. He'll be invisible for all of eternity because that's his nature. He is a spirit. He doesn't take corporeal form. He doesn't take bodily form. So the Holy Spirit is invisible, but he's like the wind. And you can know when he arrives. You can also know what he sounds like. You can hear his voice. As I'm teaching you this passage, I can think back over my life, and like I've shared with you in the past, I remember when I was five years old. And I remember when my dad was telling me that Christ died on the cross for my sins in a large meeting. I remember where I was sitting. It was an old Jewish theater where they made Marjorie Morningstar. And I remember I was sitting on the left side, on the northern side of the platform, kind of up in the choir loft. And I remember it as clear as day. And I remember that that was the time that I began to hear the voice, Jesus loves you. Jesus died in your place. Jesus rose again. Do you believe that? Will you depend upon that? And there was a voice inside of me. And it was a very strong voice. I remember that voice speaking to me when I was seven years old at a campfire. Jimmy Johnson, a southern evangelist, was speaking. And he was speaking about, you must be born again. I can remember riding a speedboat about 11 o'clock at night. And I was up on the front of the bow of the boat, lying down, looking up at the Milky Way and the Adirondacks, and I remember the joy of knowing the Creator of all that is my Savior, and He's inside of me, and He loves me. And I remember the Spirit making those realities real to me. And I want all of you to stop and think. Can you think back over your life history and think about moments when the wind, when the voice of the Spirit related to the Holy Scriptures, taking messages of Scripture into your life was very real to you? You see, what Jesus is saying is this whole thing about being born again is the Spirit's thing. It's what the Spirit does. It can take place anytime, any place. It's not limited to this auditorium. Some of you all have been raised in a culture where the basic idea is that the Holy Spirit only blows on Sunday morning at 11.50. At 11.50 when the preacher got through with his message and he went into the, the invitation phase and that's when the Spirit spoke. Now the reason a lot of people think that is because that is when the Spirit spoke for them. And that's fantastic. That is when they met the Lord. But a lot of them begin to think that's the only time someone meets the Lord. And that's the exclusive time where you meet the Lord. And then we begin to put all kinds of regimentation around it to make it happen. Then you can't do that with the Spirit. And so what I find across this whole area, I've got a whole lot of people that say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. We're nice Christians. 
We read the Bible every once in a while. We celebrate the holidays every once in a while. We're Christians. And if you throw a little Bible into some things, if you talk about Jesus a little bit, everybody goes, oh, yeah, that's great. We love Jesus. You might not be born again. Knowing all that, man, you are in a culture where you're breathing Christianity, but you could miss it. Because very, very few people that I talk to are really, really clear on the gospel. They go around it, they shoot over it, they shoot under it, they use kind of the language, but there's a lot of people that I'm in contact with that they have not been born from above because they haven't listened carefully to what the Spirit's saying. And the Spirit is not a preacher like me. He's a very deep, penetrating, divine person who speaks in the pit of your heart, right in the core of your being. And I would pray that every single one of you can remember the moments. I don't care if you know the date. You don't have to remember it. But you ought to know that the Spirit has made the plan of salvation real to you and you've responded to it. It's an amazing thing how in some of our Christian families you'll have a 5-year-old, a 3-year-old, a 7-year-old that suddenly gets tremendously burdened about their relationship with God. I'll have a parent come up to me and say, we were at breakfast the other day, and suddenly my child came unglued. And it wasn't, you know, as I began, to, at first I was afraid. But then as we started to talk, it was beautiful, because they were really concerned about their sin. They were concerned about the bad things. They were concerned about what Jesus had done for them. They learned about it in Sunday school. They learned about it in Awana. And suddenly they, they, they really want to do something about it. They want to believe. A lot of parents have led their kids to the Lord. That's the wind. It's the wind. You can't program it. You can't plan it. You don't have to force it. But what a thrill to experience it, to hear that voice, to have that clarity of what it means. If you think the little kids sometimes don't have it, on the way to school, Janae was conversing with me. And she said, you know, she said, you know, wicked men, wicked soldiers put Jesus on the cross. Wicked, wicked soldiers put Jesus on the cross. And then she was just talking a little bit more. She said, it was so painful for him to be on the cross. And she just went on and was describing and interacting about the horror of Jesus dying. And then she almost broke into it like a big smile and said, but he's alive, Daddy. He isn't dead. He's alive. And then she went on and said, you know what I want to do when I get to heaven? When I get up to heaven, I want to just, I want to just, just be with Jesus and have him love me. And then you just say, all right, time to go to school. Go right on. And all of you, a whole bunch of you that have little ones like that, Hear messages like that. And you can remember those stories, the reality. That's the wind of the Spirit. Unless you ever take that lightly, say, oh, they don't really understand. I understood what I thought in my mind when I was five. I still remember it at 39. I could describe it vividly. Because the Spirit wind. Some of you are much older when the Spirit wind really started to speak to your life when He is a person began to talk with you. Has the Spirit, His voice, touched your heart? And what have you said back?
how have you responded? Jesus goes on and says this. So is everyone born of the Spirit? It's like the wind. You can't control it. You can't program it. You can't see it, but you can hear it, and you can see the effects in someone's life. Now look at verse 9. Nicodemus throws up his hand. He says, how can this be? In other words, it's the human response. How could that ever be? How could that ever be the way that someone comes to God? Now look at verse 10. This is Jesus' response. You are Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things. And that's something you need to greatly understand. A lot of people in our culture have the idea that if you're a pastor, if you're a reverend, if you're a priest, if you're a rabbi, you understand how to get into the kingdom of God. Well, if you read John's gospel carefully, you ought to understand that every time you see a minister, you really ought to talk to the minister as you get to know them a little bit about what it means to be born again. Because if Nicodemus, who was a ruler of the Jewish people, did not understand when Jesus was right in front of them, then the chances of a preacher not understanding the gospel today is very, very real. And I think it would be super. I would challenge you when you're at a wedding, when you're at a funeral, when you're um, interacting for some kind of a family get-together and there's a preacher there, don't you ever just assume, oh, they're a preacher. They must be right with God. There's a very good chance they're not. Now, a lot of them are, but I'll tell you something. If a preacher is born from above, and you as a quote-quote lay person, which I hate the terminology, but you understand what I mean, if you as a lay person go up to a preacher that genuinely is born again and begin to share your faith with them about your belief in Christ and the certainty that you're a part of the kingdom of God, if they are born again, they will come unglued at the seams. They will be so excited... It'll probably make their ministry for the next six months. They'll say, I can't believe it. There's someone that's not paid for this. They're not professionals. And they're really concerned. And they're even concerned about religionists. Boy, that's tremendous. Someone that's really born again will never give you any trouble at all. Someone that isn't, they might get angry. You know, they might get very indignant. And you can just back off a little bit and just say it just means a whole lot to me to know I'm a member of the kingdom of God. And I just wondered what you thought about that. And then let them share. But don't ever take it for granted that someone understands how to be in the kingdom of God because Nicodemus was a, a learned Hebrew scholar and he didn't know. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, you should have known this. How could you possibly not know this? You've studied the Old Testament. Then he goes on. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know. This is verse 11. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I want to share something with you that really, really concerns me. I hear a lot of people saying, there are so many different brands. The Baptists have their brand. The Bible churches have their brand. The Methodists have their brand. The Roman Catholics have their brand. The Jews have their brand. There's just so many different brands. How am I ever supposed to know what brand I should buy? How many of you have ever heard that? I want to ask you something. The person that's saying that, do they really understand what Baptists believe about you must be born again? Have they really read like a Baptist theologian? No. 
The truth of the matter is, if you get into the history of the Baptist church, and a lot of the Baptist churches in our area, they believe you must be born again just the way the Bible church believes you must be born again. In fact, any church that really makes the Bible, even in a small way, the center of their worship, in the sense of the center of their authority and their guidance, if they read the Bible at all, sooner or later they'll get something right about you must be born again. The gospel that Christ died in our place, that he rose again, that he's coming back, that you need to believe in him to have eternal life, is not that confusing. And so the person that says there's all these different brands, there's not a lot of different brands among legitimate Bible-believing, born-again people. And you might even have someone that's a Roman Catholic that's been raised in a tradition totally different, and yet they started to get into the Bible, they started studying it, they started um, reading it very carefully, and I know some Roman Catholics that are preaching must be born again very strongly. And they're turning away from the sacrifice of the Mass. Turning away. You see, in our day, everything is just getting very interesting. But don't buy the idea. There's just so many different ways. You say, why not? Because you're not going to stand before the Baptist Convention. You're not going to stand before Dallas Theological Seminary. You're not going to stand before anybody else when you die except one man. And every single one of us are going to stand before one man, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he's the one that you're going to have to deal with. And it's not going to work to be able to say, oh, it was just so confusing, Jesus. He said, did you have a Bible in your home? I can just hear him. Now, he won't really do this because he doesn't have to. But just imagine. He said, did you have a Bible in your home? Oh, yeah. Did you read it? Uh-huh. Once in a while, when I was really in trouble. I used to flip through the pages, look it up. He said, how much did you read Reader's Digest? How many books did you read through in your life? How many stories have you read? How many romantic stories have you read? You've read a whole bunch, and that's really good. I'm really glad you got knowledge. I only gave you one book. It's really not that large a book. In fact, let's just take the New Testament. Did you ever read the New Testament? Did you ever just read it? just to find out what's really in this book. And you say, okay, maybe you haven't done that, but there's one book that was especially addressed to the issue about this moment, about how you go from the kingdom of earth into the kingdom of heaven. One book really deals with that, the Gospel of John. It's very short. In some ways, it's just a, you know, a little bit over 20 chapters. You could probably read it in a Sunday afternoon. And it would have told you exactly about this moment. You see, what I want you to get into, teenagers, children, moms and dads, I want you to realize that we're just playing around until we start to think clearly about what we have in this book. If you're a teenager and you've got questions about spiritual things, questions about how to get right with God, open the book. Read it. Don't deceive yourself and say, oh, there's just so many different options. You find out what your option is. Find out what the voice of Jesus says to you. Read it. Jesus told Nicodemus, you're a teacher in Israel. You didn't know these things. You should have known it. 
And Jesus also said, I'm the one who tells you the truth. The reason I believe in Jesus and the reason I'm talking to you the way I am is because Jesus is the only man that I know that's been in the kingdom of heaven, has come from the kingdom of heaven into the kingdom of the earth, went from the kingdom of the earth back to the kingdom of heaven, and he's the only one I know that's been able to pull that off. And that's why I believe in him. Because he's the only one that's been there before. He came and lived the kind of a life that I lived. And he's gone back to that kingdom of heaven. And he says that I know the way, follow me. And I want you to think real clearly about that. Jesus is the authority. The church isn't the authority. A preacher isn't the authority. But the person of Jesus is. That's what Jesus is saying. I know what I'm talking about. We know, he said, because I believe the whole Trinity is involved. Because in John 17, he'll say, I and the Father. What I see my Father doing, I do. I and the Father are one. Jesus always thought of himself operating in concert with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he uses a we. Because it's the plural, tri it's the triunity of God. The unity of the Holy Trinity is saying we know what we talk about. And then he goes on and says this. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in me may have eternal life. And then we have, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But Jesus said this, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Once upon a time back in ancient Israel, there was a group of three teenagers, Ken, Sally, and Dick. And they were typical Israelite kids. They were out in the wilderness, wandering around with several thousand people because the Lord had brought them to Mount Sinai, given them the law, and now they're wandering, trying to get to the promised land. And Sally, Dick, and Ken would get together and they would express, I'm getting tired of this food. Any kids ever here griped about the food? Well, Dick would say to Ken, man, I tell you, you know, the other day I went out, I got, and it's the same old stuff again. These wafer things. Sure, I know they drop out of heaven. But Ken, how much, you know, how much can you stand to eat this stuff every single day? You know what else? It stinks if you get too much of it. You get, you collect way too much, and man, you've got a, a, just a, a mess on your hand with worms in it, maggots and everything. It's the pits. You know what else? I don't like the desert. I do not like wandering around the desert. Sally jumped at this time and says, I don't like the desert at all. I mean, whoever wanted to go on a 40-year camping trip? Man, I, there's no mirrors here. There's no running water. It's getting awfully hard to keep track of the Egyptian charcoal that we put on our eyes. I mean, this is bad news stuff. Man, it's great session Israelite style in the wilderness. They forgot to remember that their shoes weren't wearing out, their clothes weren't wearing out. I mean, their bodies were being kept up by a miraculous gift of God. I mean, the grace of God was keeping a couple million people alive on a camp out. But they forgot all about that. Because it's human nature to forget. Ken went over to Sally one morning, and it was right after breakfast, and suddenly out from underneath a knapsack, 
a snake struck. Sally screamed. You could imagine how she'd scream. I mean, bloody murder. Ah, you know, like that. You could, the girls could fill that in. Ken didn't scream. He was hit right in the leg. Big viper bite. Suddenly, all over the camp of Israel, that horrifying scream. As vipers came out, it just seemed that snakes were everywhere. It was a horror flick like you would never imagine. I mean, snakes everywhere. Everyone getting bitten. Everyone being stung. And Kenan, there's a great big ugly black welt that begins to develop around the wound. He begins to run this horrible fever. His body begins to shake. Suddenly another snake comes out and hits Sally. And she drops right beside him and, and they're just lying there. It's terrible. Over in Ken's tent, the same thing has happened. And you can hear now, you don't hear screams, but all over the camp of Israel, you start to hear groaning. You start to hear crying because the plague is striking the Israelites. Moses, the leader of the people, because the responsibility of a leader is to protect his people. It's to preserve his people. And he starts to hear these screams and this agony over the whole camp. And he goes to God and says, God, what is happening? And God says, I provided for them. I met their needs. I am good. I am holy. I've always been that way. And all these people do is gripe and reject me. They always think they know the better way. And the plague is broken out because when you reject me, you walk into death. It's always been that way, Moses. The wages of sin is always death. If you disobey me, you'll surely die. And that's why death is breaking out in the Israelite camp. Because you've rejected me. You forgot about my grace. And Moses says, but Father, they're your children. You've got to care about them. You've got to do something for them. You can't annihilate your people here in the wilderness. And God says, I'm not. It's never my intention to annihilate my people. But Moses, I'm going to tell you to do a very strange thing. I want you to go out in the middle of the camp. I want you to put a pole up in the middle of those two million people that are dying from snake bite. And I want you to hang a brass snake on that pole. And Moses says, God, you've got to be kidding. What in the world do you want me to go out? This is a plague. This is death. People are dying. Families are being destroyed. This is the worst crying I've heard in, in my whole life. You tell me to go out in the middle of the camp and put a pole up and, and get a brass snake and put it up on that pole? Yeah, that's exactly what I tell you to do. And then, Moses, I want you to go out through the camp and I want you to tell anyone if they'll look on the snake, on the pole, that they'll be all right that they'll be well. And Moses shakes his head in bewilderment, but he obeyed. And he erected a pole in the middle of the Israelite camp. And he put a twisted serpent of brass up on that pole. And then he started going through the camp. And he went into 110 and he said, look, look, they said, but we're dying, we're dying. And he came to Ken's and he says, Ken, there's a pole in the middle of the camp. There's a snake on it. 
Come here to the entrance. Look at the pole. Look at the snake on the pole. Look and you'll live. That is all. You got to be crazy. That's the most stupid thing I've ever heard of. Suck on this a little bit. Cut it with a knife. Put a tourniquet on my leg. What are you telling me to look at a stupid snake on a pole for? Moses grabs him by the shoulders and pulls him to the entrance. And he says, look, Ken. Look and you'll live. And Ken does. And instantaneously, his body's healed. The curse is gone. And he gets it. He, he looks around and says, I can't believe it. And he starts to run from one tent to the next. And he gets to Dick and Sally. And Dick and Sally are very close to death. They're dying in their tent. And he runs and he says, come on, come on, come on. You've got to look, look and live. And he grabs a hold and they say, no, no, just like him. They said, that's crazy. It's stupid. It'll never work. He says, oh, yes, it will. It worked for me. And he grabs Dick and Sally and pulls them to the entrance of their tent. And he says, look. And they live and their bodies are healed. And across the camp of Israel, instead of agony and pain and death, suddenly over the whole camp you start to hear joys of victory, joys of salvation. And Jesus told it's a one-paragraph story in the Old Testament. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, look and live. My heavenly Father told you the essence of the whole story hundreds of hundreds of years ago. He says, as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever shall look at the snake, they'll live. You see, John is telling us that every single one of us is a snake bit. Every single one of us are born of flesh, and we are dying of an incurable satanic serpent bite I am you are we have all kind of techniques you can be adjusted you can be therapeutically cared for you can have this technique and that technique it will not deal with the core of the serpent bite the wickedness inside of your heart and mind is bigger than you think it's worse than you think it's more painful than you think if you're wrestling with alcohol here today and it's dragging you right down and your whole family is being torn apart by it, you are not going to beat it by pretending, by saying, oh, I can handle it. If you're being eaten by immorality and you are lusting after illicit relationships and you're scared to death your mate's going to find out, you're not going to beat it. You're not going to solve it by trying harder. You're not going to solve it by being more religious. You can come to this building to your blue in the face and it won't do anything for you because we have a wicked, degenerate, black condition in our heart. And Jesus told Nicodemus, but God cares. He doesn't want you to die of the plague. He doesn't want this horrible wickedness, this evil, that American society has totally missed how bad it is, how evil it is. We can't believe how evil it is when it hits us right in the face. Lying, deception, immorality, pride, arrogance, cheating. And Jesus says you've got to face that disease. But he says a serpent was hung in a pole. You see, the story of John goes on, and Jesus got up on the cross of Calvary, the pole in the middle of the people. And God the Father turned his back on that pole, 
and it became dark over the whole universe because in some mysterious, eternal plan of God, Jesus became the snake. He took all of your immorality. Jesus became the sacrifice for your adultery. He became the sacrifice for your drunkenness. He became the sacrifice for your lying. He became the sacrifice for your violent hatred that makes you want to just tear someone apart at times. Jesus became the serpent. He became the curse for us. And all he tells you to do is look. Commit yourself to that sacrifice and you'll live. The world always says it's stupid. It'll never work. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. We've got to come up with a better cure. And down through the centuries, Jesus is saying, look to Nicodemus. Look to Peter. Look to Paul. Look to every one of you, and you'll live. I told you the Spirit's like the wind. Maybe the Holy Spirit's been speaking to your heart. And he says, look, and you'll live. Have you looked deep in your heart? Have you committed your life personally to the Savior? Not a religious act, but a personal commitment. Will you admit that you've got a serpentine, horrible, wicked core? We're not immoral because of bad influences from the outside. We're immoral because of a horrible wickedness from deep inside. We don't lie because we're taught we're not viciously angry because of what someone else did to us. When somebody hurts us, we respond with a tremendous force of retaliation because we're intensely angry and hateful, and it's right at the core of our being. Will you admit that? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But Jesus says... Look and live. Look to the Lamb of God who became the curse, the serpent for us. On the cross of Calvary in a miraculous, supernatural way, Jesus took the payment for our sin. If you look to that cross, you'll live. That's what the gospel is. If you depend upon that sacrifice, if you'll put all of your hope for forgiveness, for cleansing from sin, in that once-for-all death of Jesus who became the serpent on the pole for you, you'll be saved forever. Jesus rose again the third day, and he's alive, and that's why his sacrifice has so much power, because he not only came from heaven into this world, but he was lifted up. In the Gospel of John, he was lifted up on Calvary, and by being lifted up on Calvary, he was eventually lifted up to the very right hand of the Father in heaven. And he's been given authority over all things. And that's why he's my Savior and why he can be your Savior. Will you believe that he rose again from the dead? I just pray that that wind of the Spirit is speaking quietly and yet powerfully in your life. And I invite you to say yes to that voice. Yes to that realization of who Christ is. If you make that commitment deep in your heart, the core of your being, you'll be saved forevermore. Father, I just would ask you that you would take Jesus' discussion about you must be born from above 
to underscore the essential life-giving truth that the only way we're going to get into the kingdom of God is to be born from above. As we continue with the life of Jesus, I pray that his life would radically transform our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.